Well, hey, everybody. Welcome. Uh, we are so thankful just uh, for the opportunity to gather on a Wednesday night and to open God's Word together. And uh, it's just so great to see several of you, a few of you I haven't seen in what feels like forever, but it's, it's been maybe even as long as a year. Um, but what a, what a privilege it is to be able to gather. And not only those of us here in this room, uh, but also there are others who are joining us online tonight, and it's, it's just wonderful for us to have the chance to gather and to open God's Word. I, you just think about what we just said. It, it's amazing for us to be able to gather and to open God's Word, for us to be able to get to know God because God has chosen to reveal Himself to us. Um, we should never, ever get over that, right? Um, but over the next several weeks, over the next five weeks, we're going to be exploring one particular section of God's Word, and that is the section of God's Word found in the book of Acts. And so we're going to be there uh, for the next few weeks. And, and I've kind of given the, a subtitle to the study of Acts, Contagious Christianity, which is a terrible pun in this day and age, right, for us to talk about that, or, or a frightening thought. Uh, but I think it's appropriate for what is described in the book of Acts. Because what we see in the book of Acts is the gospel and the message and the good news of Jesus Christ going from one geographic location en route to the ends of the earth. And it went from person to person to person. It, in a sense, the gospel goes viral in the pages of the book of Acts. And it explains how something could begin so small and grow to something so large. How it could begin with maybe only as many as 120 followers of Jesus, even right after his resurrection, who are gathering together in a room to a movement that is on every continent of the world today. And that billions of people would understand and, and would profess that they are following Christ. How did that happen and where did it begin? Well, we're going to look at that a little bit over the next five weeks as we fly through the book of Acts together. Now, if we were to adequately go verse by verse through the book of Acts, that would be an endeavor that would take way more than five weeks. Um, but it's helpful for us still to look at it in somewhat of a swift move so that we can begin to see some of the, the big picture things that are happening. And so we're going to look at five different sections of the book of Acts over the next several weeks, and hopefully we walk away with a little bit of an understanding of what happened in the early days of the church, and how does that connect with our lives today. So we're, that's what the plan is, and, and that's what we're going to do. But before we begin that journey together today, I, I want to just take a moment and pray for us. So would you bow your heads with me? Father God, we are so thankful for just the chance to open your word and to study it. We're, we're thankful for what you did in history not hidden in some mountaintop that only one person might have known about, but something you did in full view from the ministry of Jesus to his crucifixion and resurrection, then the sending of the Spirit and the birth of the church. We're thankful for the preservation of this history in the book of Acts, and we pray that you would help us to glean everything that you would want us to glean from it over the next five weeks, that you might enlighten our minds and that you might stir our hearts and that you might 
move us to trust you more, that our hands and our feet might be more oriented to do your work and to go in your ways in this life that we now live. We thank you so much for the opportunity to to have these discussions tonight and in the days ahead, and we pray just a special blessing on our time here. We thank you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. All right, well, we're going to be talking about the book of Acts. But before we get there, I want to set up the situation of the book of Acts by showing you a photograph. So so here is a picture. And I'm going to ask a a question. This is not a rhetorical question. This is a real question. What do you see in this picture? You see a cross, okay? What else do you see in this picture? The Colosseum, okay? Now, what is the Colosseum? Where is it? It's in Rome, okay? This was the largest stadium of its kind built at that time, 50,000 people could gather inside of the Colosseum. Does anybody know when the Colosseum in Rome was built? Roughly. I had to look it up too, I didn't know. Uh, but it, it, was, it was built right after about 70 AD. Um, maybe completed in about 72 AD. You might wonder how the Roman Empire got the resources to build this. While we can't know for certain, there was a significant event that happened in 70 AD, just a couple of years prior, under the direction of a general by the name of Titus, where they gathered and looted a number of resources from one particularly prominent city in the Middle East. Does anybody know what that city was? Jerusalem. The Romans sacked the city of Jerusalem And they took all of the riches from the temple of God that was found in the city of Jerusalem. And with those resources, they took them back to Rome and they constructed something. What they built was the largest stadium of its kind that had ever been built. Now, what happened inside of the Colosseum? There were games, right? But they weren't games like basketball and football and baseball. They were games where people and animals were killed for sport. In one particular event in the history of the Colosseum, as many as 2,000 gladiators died. Sometimes they were professional warriors who would die on the surface of the Colosseum. Sometimes they were slaves or prisoners, but oftentimes there was another particular group of people who died frequently on the floor of the Colosseum. Does anybody know? Yeah, Christians died. Often, many, many lost their life on the floor of the Colosseum. Now you can imagine what the Colosseum in Rome constructed with the loot taken from the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in a place that was a a symbol of death for entertainment where Christians' lives were, were, were thrown to the wind what a Christian living in the first century might have thought of such a place. They would have thought that this this place is a symbol of death. It's a symbol of everything that is wrong. It's a a symbol of the world that seems to be winning and triumphing over the growth of the church. And yet today, 2,000 years later, there stands a cross in a very particular spot 
of the ruins of the Colosseum. Does anybody know where this spot is? This is the emperor's gate in the place where the emperor, Nero, and his, those that followed after him would sit. They would sit there and watch the killing of Christians. And yet today, we don't even know the names of those emperors, but there's a cross that hangs in that spot. Now, this, this picture and this image is a reminder to us of the massive change that happened in the world, where the church that began with just a few in a room could grow into a movement that would define the world and would ultimately be the anchor for humanity's salvation. But if you were to go back to the first century and you were to talk to a Christian and you were to say, um, you know, hey, what is, what is going on over there and where, what is the future of that place? They would say, it looks like that place is winning. It looks like the, the, the forces of darkness, it looks like the Romans are going to stamp out the church. And yet today, what stands there is the ruins of Rome, but the triumph of Christ. And people go to Rome not to learn about Nero, but they go to Rome to, to see where Paul was imprisoned. And they go to to Rome to visit buildings that are named after St. Peter. And they go there to to talk and to explore the, the history of Christianity, not the history of Rome. How did that happen? How is it that something that began so small could become so mighty? Well, the history of that, friends, begins and is detailed in the book of Acts. And over the next few weeks, we're going to look at that. Now... How are we going to do that? How are we going to look at the book of Acts? Well, we're going to do so in, in these five movements. Tonight, we're going to look at chapters 1 through 9. We have a, a very modest ambition this evening, right? We're going to only look at the first nine chapters of the book of Acts. Uh, but we're going to begin there today, and we're going to see that the theme of those first nine chapters is that Jesus is alive and well. Then next week, we're going to look and see that in chapters 9 through 15, that the mission that Jesus is on and the church that he is building is growing and it's beginning to go into all the world. And then after a week off for spring break, we'll be back on the 24th and we'll be talking about how this church is being planted in locations all over, particularly the European continent. And they're enduring a lot of difficulty. We'll see that in chapters 15 through 18. And then on the 31st of March, we'll see that discipleship is happening as Paul and his compatriots revisit some of the places where they have planted churches. And they're discipling the followers of Christ in those places. And and also the sense of destiny that Paul has to return to Jerusalem and to complete the work that God had for him. And then on April the 7th, we'll end the book of Acts by looking at the last seven chapters as we see the testimony that Paul gives in front of a number of different Roman leaders and ultimately the trials that he has before them. And so that's our plan over the next few weeks. And so as you can see, we've got an ambitious agenda. So without further ado, we'll go ahead and and get started. So I want to begin by talking a little bit about an introduction to the book of Acts. So the first thing that we 
want to know about Acts is, is who wrote it. And the author of the book of Acts is this guy by the name of Luke. Now, when you think of the first century world, uh, we realize that from a Jewish perspective, there were only two kinds of people. There were Jewish people, and then there were Gentile people. Who were the Gentiles? Everyone who wasn't a Jew, right? Um, Luke was one of those non-Jewish people. And yet he was used by God to write both the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke, and the book of Acts. I think that's something important for us to think about. The mission of the church was never intended to stay within the nation of Israel. And, and part of the way that God took the, the gospel to the ends of the earth was he began to involve people in his mission who were not from the nation of Israel. Luke was one of those. Uh, tradition would say that Luke was probably from the city of Philippi. And he joined Paul in his mission, second missionary journey when Paul and his friends were headed to the city of Philippi. And he stuck with Paul for the rest of his life. And so Luke would have firsthand experience with Paul traveling. And because of that, he would be able to know everything that was going on with Paul and his ministry, something that would detail at least you know, two-thirds of the book of, of Acts. And so a number of the sources that, that Luke had were his own eyewitness, but also what Paul would tell him about things that occurred before Luke and Paul joined up. But also by traveling with Paul, Luke would have had access to all of a number of different members of the early church. And as he talked to them, he learned what happened in the places where he wasn't. And so he was able to share the stories in the pages of the book of Acts of what he saw and heard and understand were happening. And so what we see in the book of Acts is we see an, a historical account written by Luke and delivered for humanity to be able to read about the things that happened in the first century. Now, when did this happen? Well, we think that the book of Acts was written in about 63 AD. Now, how do we know that it was written in 63 AD? Well, we know that because that is the postmark on the original. No, we don't have an original. We don't know. Um, so you might wonder, you, you ever hear people say things with some kind of definitiveness, you know, that this book was written at this time. How do we know? Well, there's actually a, some kind of a, a science that helps us understand when books were written. The reason why we think that the book of Acts was written in about 63 A.D., is because when you reconstruct the events of Paul's life and the book ends with Paul imprisoned in Rome awaiting trial, that happened in 63 AD. Um, so we understand that it he wrote it about then. The reason why we think he wrote it then and not later, reflecting back on that time, is because there's nothing mentioned that happened after 63 AD. The book kind of ends in a cliffhanger. It doesn't end with resolution. It doesn't end by telling us of some significant things that happened after 63 A.D. that he probably would have included if the book had been written after 63 A.D. Things like Nero's persecution of Christians in Rome and or throughout the Roman Empire. Things like the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. Those things are not referenced or mentioned or talked about in the book of Acts, which, which lets us have a clue that the book of Acts was most likely written before 
those events happen. And so we think it happened in 63 AD. But it's important for us to understand that the events that take place in the book of Acts actually occurred in a 30-year period beginning in about 33 AD at the ascension of Jesus after his resurrection. So Acts covers a historical period of about 30 years, and it was written in 63 AD. Now, why was it written? Why was it written? Well, it was written as part two. We know that because in Acts chapter 1, Luke begins his letter and he says, I'm going to keep going with the story that I began earlier. And he says he was collecting these stories to share with someone by the name of Theophilus. And so apparently there was a a man named Theophilus who had, had contracted with Luke to record the history, both of Jesus and of the early church. And and that two-part work is what we see in um, the book of Luke and then in the book of Acts. And so this is the continuation. Now, you might wonder, why would the story continue? If, If it's ultimately all about Jesus, why would the story not just end with where the gospel of Luke ends? Why keep going with the history of the early church? And and the reason for that, well, we'll see in a moment, but the reason for that, I think, is because Jesus kept going, right? He He didn't quit. He didn't die and stay dead. He rose from the dead and he continued his mission. He continued his ministry. And he continued it through the early church. And so from Luke's perspective, as he writes this this story, as he records this history, he he's wants to make sure that everybody knows that Jesus is still going. You might have heard of a, an organization today. It's a church planting coaching organization called the Acts 29 Network. And Acts 29 gets its name because the book of Acts ends in chapter 28. But it's Acts 29 because it's, it's the continuing story of what Jesus is doing. And I think if we were to think about that in terms of today, Luke continues up to the current point that he wrote it because Jesus was still at work. And what that lets us know, you and I, as we sit here today, is that Jesus is still at work. Amen? Right? The church is not a dead organization. It's not a museum that collects things from the past. It's a current, contemporary work of God in the world, bringing reconciliation between humanity and God. And we see that play out. So Luke is sharing the part two of what Jesus was up to by talking about his work in the early church. And in a sense, we would say, ultimately, this is his story. It's, it's Jesus' story. You know, when we look at the book of Acts in our Bible, we'll, we'll see it says in my Bible and your Bible probably says the same thing, the Acts of the Apostles. That title was a, uh, you know, a, a, a historical title that was attached to this letter, and we see it put in lists about this book as early as 150, but you'll notice the word Acts of the Apostles is not something that appears actually in the biblical text. It was added to it to describe what happens here. And I would go so far as to say it's not that it's, it's a wrong title. I think it's a right title in one sense. But I think you also could say it's the acts of Jesus through the apostles. It's not like the apostles became independent of Jesus and started doing some awesome stuff. It's that Jesus kept working through the apostles. 
And that, friends, is the story of the church. Jesus keeps doing things through his followers. That's the nature of the church in the first century, and it's the nature of the church today. And so with that set up as an introduction to the book, I I want us to, to look at the first nine chapters of Acts tonight so that we might begin to understand a little bit more about how that played out. So the first section I want us to look at is Acts chapters 1 and 2, the first two chapters of of Acts. And a headline that we might put over this is that Jesus is risen, he's not retired. You know, in our world, retirement is a thing. Uh, There might be some of you in the room here today who are retired. And what that means is you have you have stepped back from your vocation, right? You've, you've taken a step back from your work. In, the, in, in popular culture, we might think of retirement as, you know, leaving this place and, and moving to Del Boca Vista, a gated community where, you know, you drive around in a golf cart and you enjoy the fruit of the earlier days of your life. You know, there is a, a thought about Jesus that at his resurrection and his ascension that he retired he had put in his time and he went to heaven and now he's left it for the grandkids to do with what they would do with it. You know, he, he set them up well. I ho- he hoped that they would maintain the nest egg. There's a, there's a thought about Jesus that he retired and he left it to others. But that thought is not what the Bible says. And that thought is not reality. Jesus has not retired to heaven. He's risen. He's just transitioned the way that he is at work. When he was on the earth, he was at work through his his physical body as he moved from place to place in Palestine. But when he ascended to heaven, he has continued his work through the body, through the church, and through the work of the Spirit among us. He's risen. He's not retired. Now, where do we see that inside of these verses? Well, the first thing that we see that stands out to us is Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. This is a version of the Great Commission. You know, oftentimes when we think of this topic of the Great Commission, this great command that Jesus gave to his followers to go into all the world and take the gospel and make disciples of all nations, uh, that idea that we know from Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20, we see another version of that Great Commission in Acts 1.8. I think it's important for us to recognize that the Great Commission is given in different forms in Acts 1-8 and Matthew 28, not because Luke and Matthew heard something different. I mean, Luke wasn't there. He would have reported what was told to him. But here's the thing. It's not that they, they heard it wrong. It's that Jesus talked about it a lot. In the 40 days between his resurrection and his ascension, he kept giving them the Great Commission. And like any good teacher, he said it different ways at different times so that they would get it and understand what he was trying to communicate to them. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8 is one of the versions of that Great Commission that Jesus gave to his followers. And he says to them, he says, you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you're going to be my witnesses. But Jesus goes further, not just that you'll be my witnesses, but he tells them where they will be his witnesses. He says, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. He says, you're going to be my witnesses in concentric circles of geographic impact that will begin right here where we are in Jerusalem. 
And then they will impact the whole area around Jerusalem, the area of Judea. And then they're going to impact the next state over in Samaria. And ultimately, they're going to go to the ends of the earth. And in their minds, the ends of the earth would be all the way to places like Rome. And so what we see in Acts 1-8 was not just an idea or a lofty goal that Jesus gives, but it's a promise. It's a promise that says, guess what? You are going to be my witness And you're going to be my witness in all of these different places. And when we walk through the book of Acts, we're going to see that that witness began in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2. That witness extends into the surrounding area of Judea in chapters 2 through 7. It moves into the area of Samaria in Acts chapter 8. And then it ultimately makes it all the the way to the city of Rome by Acts in the the uttermost parts of the earth by Acts chapter 28. And so this verse is not just an idea, it's not just a goal, it's a promise. And the same thing is still operative for us today. We are still in these outer parts of the earth, the ends of the earth, in Oklahoma and everywhere we go and we take the gospel and the good news with us. We are called to be the witnesses of what Jesus has done. It's a promise that he gave to them, and it's a promise that is still operative for us today. Now, beyond that, what else do we see inside of the first couple of chapters of Acts? Well, one of the things that we see in Acts chapter 1, verses 12 to 26, is we see Judas being replaced. So Jesus says, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, and then... They said, okay, well, he said that we're to wait here until the Spirit comes, so they decide to wait. They do exactly what Jesus said. So they go back to a room, and when they get back to this room, they gather. There's about 120 of them, and Peter leads the staff meeting, and he says, okay, guys, we need to replace Judas. Now, why do you think Judas needed to be replaced? Any thoughts on that? It's a real question. What's that? Okay, yeah, because he needed to be replaced. <laughs> he was no longer alive. But, but why not just roll with 11? What's that? Okay, yeah, 12 is a significant number. Maybe there's a, a connection with the number of the, the tribes of, of Israel there. Yeah, good idea. Ultimately, I don't know exactly. But here is an idea. I think part of the reason why it was important to fill that spot was to remind everyone that Jesus' mission was going to go on even if people missed out. Jesus made a promise in Matthew 16. He said, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And that's what he's done in a number of different environments and a number of different places all over the world. Jesus has continued to build his church. And in all of these different locations, there are people who have embraced it and who have gotten on board with that mission and have been able to uh, experience the joy of working with Christ for the building of his church. And there are others who have opted out and who have rejected it. But when people reject what Christ is doing, ultimately they are the ones who miss out. You know, back when I was growing up, um, I had this experience where I, I played Little League Baseball, and 
at the end of the season, they pick an all-star team. And the all-star team gets to represent our city around the state in postseason tournaments. Well, they named the people on the team, and, and I didn't make the team. I made an alternate to the team. And a few of my friends were also alternates to this team. And that afternoon, there was supposed to be a, a tryout that later that day, a practice, and the alternates were invited to come. And, um, you know, my friends and I got together who were also alternates, and we started talking, and we, we started complaining about the politics of Little League Baseball and how we were better than so-and-so and we should be there. And after all of our talk, we, we decided that our little group was not going to go to the practice that night. We were going to show them. We were just going to stay at home and show them that they missed out on the true talent in the city of Bartlesville. Uh, well, I came home and I rehearsed that story and told that situation to my parents. And I, I still remember this. They looked at me and they said, that's, that's really nice. You're going to get your glove and you're going to go tonight. Um, and, and I was like, what? I, I'm standing up for myself. We've got a voice. I've got, they're like, no, 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 you're going to show up. You're, there are a lot of people that didn't get it selected. Even as an alternate, you're going to go. And so I went that night. None of my friends went, but I went. And guess what? Several of the all-stars were going on family vacations. And so guess who got to travel with the team? Now, here's the thing. Had I stayed home, Bartlesville still would have had a baseball team that would have traveled all over the state and got to go play in tournaments in Claremore and Altus and come within a, a win away from going to the regional tournament to get to play in the Little League World Series, all of that stuff. We, we could have, I, I could have missed out on all of that. And the only person who would have missed out is me. But by going, I got to participate. And I say that because what we see in the situation with Judas is that Jesus is still doing his thing. Judas' disobedience just caused Judas to miss out on that. And I think it's a reminder for all of us that Jesus is going to build his church, and by his grace, he has invited us to participate. If we choose to opt out, guess who misses out? We do. We get to miss out on the joy of being with our Savior in the construction of something so glorious and great. And so we see in the first chapter of Acts, we see both the promise of what is to come, and then we see the replacement of Judas uh, with Matthias. Now, here's the thing. What, where do we go next? We go to Acts chapter 2. And in Acts chapter 2, we see what Jesus promised begins to unfold. So at the beginning of, of Acts chapter 2, the, the Holy Spirit comes. Now, the Holy Spirit had been involved in ministry on the earth from the very beginning. There are instances throughout the Old Testament where the Holy Spirit would come upon, in an, in an occasional way, a follower of God and would work in some way, like with Samson or, or with others. But what we see happen in Acts chapter 2 is something altogether different. It's not the Holy Spirit coming in an occasional way. It's the Holy Spirit coming permanently to dwell within the hearts of believers in Jesus Christ to empower us for the life that God has called us to do. If you have trusted in Christ, then the Holy Spirit has come to dwell within your hearts. Now, that's the reality that we have known from the moment that we knew Christ. But it's not always been that way. There was a time where people made a profession of following God in the Old Testament through 
the, the, the system that God had created in the Old Covenant or in the New Testament, even in the days leading up to this point in Acts chapter 2, where people would believe before the Spirit would come. There was, it was a separate activity. But for, So for those of us who live today where the Spirit came at the moment of our belief, we take that for granted, but there was a time where that wasn't so. And in that time where that all changed was in Acts chapter 2. And so Jesus sends His Spirit to come down into the hearts of the believers there, and it empowers them. And what do they do when the Spirit comes inside of them? They immediately begin to speak of Jesus Christ. They immediately begin to do what Jesus said. When my Spirit comes upon you, you will be my witnesses. That's what happens. They begin to give testimony. And they begin to give testimony, it says here, by speaking a number of different languages. It's not that they were babbling on in a language that nobody understood. They were speaking languages that they had never studied or understood. So that everyone who was in Jerusalem on that day might hear and understand who Jesus was in their own language. It was a miraculous thing that happened. And the Spirit comes and it empowers them to begin to preach this message. Now, I want us to look at, we're not going to look at all these verses, but just you might look at them later in chapter 2, the, the message that Peter preaches on that day. Ultimately, his message, he uses a number of words, but basically the message that Peter preaches is this. Jesus, remember him? Now, when he says that, they're like, yeah, we remember him. He was in this city just 40 days ago, 50 days ago. He, he's the one that was crucified. We, we know that. He's the one that raised Lazarus just over the hill. It wasn't, hey, Jesus who existed a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. It was Jesus who, who was just here a little while ago. You remember him? Yeah, he's the one that you killed. But he's the son of God. And he died for our sins. Repent and receive him. And salvation can be yours. It's that simple. Peter did not say, you need to go into catechism and you need to learn all of these things. He just said, you need to understand that your hope is found in Christ. And he invited them to embrace that by faith. It's a very simple message that was rooted in history. History that they had lived through. History that they understood. Well, after Peter preaches that message in Acts 2, then Notice the response that comes next. Thousands of people respond and embrace this message. So suddenly the church goes from a few hundred to now a few thousand. This massive explosion begins to happen as people begin to embrace. Now, why was there such a dramatic response? Well, there's such a dramatic response, I believe, because the Spirit of God was at work. But why else was there such a dramatic response? Because somebody was making sense of the fact that Jesus was no longer in the grave. Right? This was a significant thing that had happened. That they were aware of. That people were looking for a body they couldn't find. Why couldn't they find it? Because it wasn't to be found on this earth. Jesus had been risen and he had ascended into heaven. The power of that message had a dramatic effect in the early church. And people began to respond. And then we have really the first description of the church. And we see this in Acts 2, beginning in verse 42. He says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. 
And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together, and they had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as they had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. We have here the first real description of what the church looked like in those early days. And so what we see in Acts chapters 1 and 2 is that Jesus is risen, not retired, and he is continuing to build and to grow his church. Now with all of that, what's a a response question that we might have as we seek to take this thought and this idea and begin to connect it to our lives? The response question I would ask each of us is this. Will you be a part of the church that Jesus is building? If Jesus is risen and not retired, if Jesus is the one who is at work today, not just in Jerusalem, but he's at work today in Norman. He's at work today in this place among us. Are we going to opt in by faith? Are we going to lean in? Are we going to seek to see Jesus continue his work in and through us, believing that Jesus wants to work in and through us, not only to lead us to worship God, but also to lead us to serve one another and also to lead us to proclaim the message into our community and into the world so that people might be added to our number day by day. Friends, if this is what Jesus is doing, he's building the church, are are we going to stay connected to him in this or are we going to opt out? We see that in this first point here. So in the first section of the book of Acts, we we see that. But what happens in the second section of Acts? Well, in the second section of Acts, we we see this in chapters 3 through chapter 8, verse 3. And in those verses, we really see that it is the same Jesus who is at work, and it's the same humanity that Jesus is working around. So if Jesus is risen and he's working through the church, then we should see evidence that Jesus-like stuff is happening, right? Now, we see that by looking at some of what happens and what is recorded in history in Acts chapter 3 through chapter 8. So what are some of those things? Well, this eye chart here that I've put up on the screen um, helps us to see some of these connections. Now, I, I, I want to just say right now that on my blog a little later tonight, all of these slides will be found there. So pastormarkrobinson.com, all of those, all these slides will be there. And so you can frantically try to write this down right now. You can take a picture of it. By all means, you can do that. Or you, all of these slides will be available there later. Um, but... I think it's fascinating for us to look at these sections and to see some of what is happening. See, in in the book of Acts, we have the body of Christ, Jesus working through his followers. In the book of Luke, remember that was Luke's first volume, part one, we have Christ and his body. So if Jesus is risen and not retired, and we were to identify that it was Jesus himself that was still at work through the church, we would see some of the things that Jesus was doing in his earthly ministry happening in the early church. And that's exactly what we see. One of the things that we see in this section of Acts is that that miracles are happening. In Acts chapter 
3, verses 1 through 10, we, we see a, a lame person who is begging by the beautiful gate. And disciples come along and he asks them for some money. And they say, we don't have any money to give you. And you can imagine he might be a little sad. And they said, but we have something that we do have to give you. And that's power in Jesus' name. Why don't you get up and walk? And he gets up and he walks. Now, that event is remarkable. But what does it sound like? It sounds like things that Jesus did in the Gospels. In, in the book of Acts, uh, in chapter 8, verses 22 through 56, is one just section of Luke's Gospel where a number of miracles that Jesus did are recorded. Um, there are other miracles recorded in the book of Luke. But what we see in, in Acts, in chapter 3 and then in chapter 5, we see miracles taking place inside of the early church that show the connection between the risen Christ continuing to work through his people. We'll talk more about this in a second, but that's something that we see. Well, we also see in this section of the book of Acts a message that is being proclaimed about Jesus. Now, the message that's being proclaimed in places like chapter 3, verses 11 to 26, is continuing the same message in, in ministry that Jesus proclaimed during his life and things like the Sermon on the Plain and other places. Jesus' message in his earthly ministry up through his resurrection is the same message that the disciples were proclaiming in the pages of the book of Acts. In other words, Jesus' voice just changed into the voice of Peter and John and the other disciples. But we see that the content of the message is consistent. Not only that, but we see provision coming to the people of God. Again, in in, in the book of Acts, we, we see it coming through the body as the body is sharing with, from what they have to others who have need. We see that in Acts chapter 4, verse 32 through uh, 37. But then in, in uh, Luke, we see Jesus providing through things like the feeding of the 5,000. So Jesus and his ministry was providing for those around him who were in need. The disciples continue that. The method or the mechanism is a little different. It's through people giving free will offerings to help those in need in the book of Acts. But the, the, the provision ultimately is the same. It, it came from Christ, from the body of Christ in Acts and from Christ in the body in the book of Luke. We also see accountability come. In the book of Acts, we see things like Ananias and Sapphira being challenged because of the, uh, the, the life that they were living and the deception that they tried to pull off and the externalness of their religion. And they get called out on that in a pretty significant way in Acts chapter 5. We also see Jesus holding accountable people that tried to pull similar charades who were scribes and Pharisees. And he calls them out in places like Luke chapter 20, verses 45 and following. And then we see a pattern of ministry. In the book of Acts, there are all these followers of Christ who are being mobilized to serve. We see that in places like Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, as the first deacons are established to care for widows and needs inside the church. But we see that same pattern happen with Jesus in his earthly ministry as he sent, sent out his disciples in pairs to do ministry, and later would send out 72 others who were followers of his to do ministry. We see those things happen in the book of Luke. So what we see happening is there's a, a signature of Jesus that took place in his earthly ministry through 
the time that is recorded in the Gospels, and we see echoes of that in the book of Acts. You know, similar, when we think about a, a signature pad on, a, on the back of a credit card, why do you sign the back of your credit card? Because your signature is a verification of whose card that really is. The appropriate use of that card is tied to that signature. In the same way, we see the signature of Jesus on the disciples in the early church, and it matches the signature from his earthly ministry so that they would be authenticated that Jesus is continuing his ministry through them. Now, the question we might want to ask is, okay, well, if that's the case, should we expect all that to continue to happen today, right? If the same Jesus is risen now and is continuing his work, how come we don't see the same kinds of miracles on a regular basis that happened in the first century happening today? And friends, the the answer to that is because the era has shifted. And we know this to be true when we look even at the course of the biblical history. You know, we cherry pick our way through history when we look at Scripture in the sense that we think that God was always doing these miraculous things. But in reality, the the miracles that God worked in history oftentimes had little densities of time. It happened around the time that Jesus came to the earth. It happened around the time that the early church was established in the first days of the church in the book of Acts. It happened around the time of Elijah. It happened around the time of Moses. There were were these eras of a, a density of a lot of supernatural things. What was God doing through those miracles in each of those eras? He was authenticating a new work that he was doing or confirming his presence among his people in some kind of a particular way. It wasn't that those events, the the, the plagues of Egypt didn't happen every weekend. It's not like they said, okay, it's, it's, it's Saturday, let's go watch God light up the sky with fireworks. It didn't happen that way. It happened at one point in history. They looked back on it and they remembered it. They remembered how God authenticated his presence with his people in the time of the exodus through those miraculous things that happened there. And God reinitiated his, his presence with his people in the time of Elijah. And he, he did a number of things through Elijah and Elijah's ministry that authenticated God's presence with his people through the, the, the time of the prophets. And then we see the same thing happen through the ministry of Jesus. It's God authenticating who he is with a signature that looks very similar to the things that happened in the time of Elijah, looks very similar to the things that happened in the time of Moses. And when it came to the early church, there was a legitimate question that would come about that would say, was Jesus really with them or is he dead? He works all of these miracles to show his signature is still all over. His fingerprints are all over the church. Now, once the church is established and once the scripture is given, remember, there was no, there was no New Testament at this time, just the verbal historical account of the eyewitnesses. Once the New Testament is confirmed and given, then this density of miracles begins to subside. And the historical written record is the authentication of the gospel. But we see in the book of Acts the continuation of Jesus. It's the same Jesus that was at work in Luke is at work in Acts. Not only that, but it's the same humanity. Also throughout this section we see that there is a rejection of Christians. Uh, We see that in Acts chapter 4, we see it in Acts chapter 5, we see it in Acts chapter 6, chapter 7, and chapter 8. It is the dominant theme of this section. The same human leaders 
who rejected Christ in Luke chapter 22 and 23 are still operative. They're still in power. And they are now opposing Christians in the book of Acts. That pattern still happens today, right? As followers of Jesus Christ, the same spirit that is in this world that rejected Christ in the first century and rejected the first expression of the church in the book of Acts still rejects and rebels against the followers of Christ today because we are the visible representation of Jesus inside this world. When we take a stand on godly principles, the world that rejected Jesus will reject us as well. It's, it's not a side theme of the book of Acts. It's front and center so that followers of Jesus might understand, even all the way to today, that though Jesus, the same Jesus that was at work in the time of his earthly ministry is still operative in the church today, the same spirit of humanity that rejected and killed Christ is also still at work in the world today. And we need to know that, and we need to be aware of that. So it's the same Jesus, and it's the same humanity, and this is this big theme of this section. So what is a response that we might come in the second section of Acts? Well, the response that might come is something like this. Opposition is to be expected. So how will you respond? Opposition, if we stand with Christ, is to be expected in this world. If we have not experienced it yet, it's because we have been either really blessed or really quiet. Because the world in which we live is not normally accepting of Christ. There might be moments of pause and moments of agreement, but the general arc of this world is not to receive Jesus and celebrate him. It's ultimately to reject him. Even if it's not something that would pass a majority vote, there is a vocal minority group and often in leadership in the world that would reject Jesus and, by proxy, his followers. So we shouldn't be surprised if we find ourselves at odds from time to time or even as a regular rhythm in our life where the convictions that we have that are based on God and Jesus and his word would find us at odds with a lot of the world around us. We shouldn't be surprised by that. It's been that way from the very beginning in the history of the church. But the question is, how do we respond when that happens? And inside of this section, there's a great example for us in how we might respond when we are rejected because of the name of Christ. And that is the example of the person of Stephen. Stephen is one of the first martyrs, the first martyr really we see inside of the book of Acts. After Jesus' crucifixion, Stephen is next up. Stephen is a young man. He was one of the first deacons. He is, is ministering and caring for people there. And he is he's seized and he is arrested, and he's, he's brought before the authorities. And in chapter 7, Stephen preaches this amazing message and gives testimony to Jesus and who he was and all that he had done. And he walks through all of Israel's history, and they're tracking with him, and they're listening until he gets to the part about Christ, and they're rejecting of him. And suddenly, the leaders just lose it. Why? Because Stephen was okay as long as he was talking about just God, but when he starts talking about Jesus, well, suddenly, that's a problem. And so the same leaders that had killed Christ get animated and they, they begin to, to come after Stephen and they rile up the crowd and the crowd decides to stone Stephen. 
And so they begin throwing rocks at him. And those rocks are landing in Stephen and his head and his back and his side. And they're taking the life out of him. So how does Stephen respond? How would you respond in a situation like that? You know, a lot of the world and the life that we've lived would would instruct us that if that were to happen to us, that we might be tempted to feel as though we were a victim, that we were victimized, and we might say, woe is me. Why is this happening to me? That hurts. It certainly hurt Stephen as well, but how did he respond? We need to see how he responded in verses 54 to 60. It says, now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at Stephen. And Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit. And he gazed into heaven and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and they stopped their ears and they rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. But as they were stoning Stephen, he called out and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, not woe is me the victim, but this is what he says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Stephen was looking to heaven in the moment of his earthly struggle. Why? Because that's where his Lord was. Why? Because that's where he was headed. Why? Because that's where his his inheritance would be forever. He did not try to find comfort and peace from the physical comfort he would have in that moment. He was looking ahead, and as he looked ahead, it changed the way he looked at those around him. He didn't look at them and say, Lord, come, go get them. Take them out. He says, Lord, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Where did he learn such a comment? He learned it from Jesus himself. who said something similar from the cross. When we look up and we realize the, the nature of and the gravity of eternity, that we might take a similar tack when we experience opposition in our world, in our lives today. That we might learn from his example and we might see our ultimate reward in heaven, not in preserving and protecting our rights and places here, but in celebrating what God will provide for us there. While we continue to faithfully try to reach the world around us now. So in the book of Acts, we've seen that Jesus is risen and not retired. We've seen that it's the same Jesus and the same humanity that the world is experiencing even today. But the third section that I want us to see here is is this. It's really from chapter 8 of Acts, verses 4 through 40. And, And that is this idea of witnesses in a particular location. Now, I mentioned this earlier. Acts chapter 1, verse 8 can prove to be a helpful outline for the book of Acts because it talks about being witnesses for Christ after the Holy Spirit comes in different areas, in Jerusalem and Judea, but then the next place is where? And in? Starts with an S. Samaria, right? It's the next area over. We might think of it, geographically speaking, for us in Norman in Oklahoma, that would be Jerusalem and Judea, and Samaria would be like Kansas. If you're from Kansas, I apologize if you consider that an insult. 
Um, but just, it's the next area to the north. But that area, just to the north, had a greater separation from Jerusalem and Judea than Oklahoma and Kansas do. It's not like they were just fellow conference mates that played each other several times a year. The reality is that Samaria and Israel were at odds because of their history. The region of Samaria was a place that had been overtaken, uh, and and the Jews in that region had intermarried with Gentiles, and their religion and their life had, had gotten really scrambled over the years. And so the, the Jews that lived in Jerusalem and Judea or in, in Galilee, they had a very distasteful view of the Samaritans as kind of a half-breed, people that they just didn't want to associate with. How significant was that separation? It was so significant that when Jews traveled from Galilee to Jerusalem or vice versa, they would often walk around Samaria. Right? They wouldn't walk through it. Now, Jesus did, but many others didn't. Why? Because they didn't even want the dust of Samaria on their sandals. That's how significant that separation was. And so Jesus comes to a group of people that had spent a lifetime walking around that area, and he says, guess what? You're going to be my witnesses, not just in this backyard, and not just up in the favorite lake area of Galilee where we've spent a lot of cool weekends, but we're, I want you to be my witnesses in that little area in the middle that area of Samaria. I want you to love those that you have avoided for all of your life. Now again, that is not just an idea, but that was a promise that plays out in Acts chapter 8. So in Acts chapter 8, we see the gospel come to Samaria, and Philip is the one who takes it there. And throughout Acts 8, we see the gospel showing up in Samaria, and we see a number of things happening and and, and unfolding in that region. But I, I want to, to, to zoom in a little bit about what happens in Acts chapter 8, verse 14 through 17. So people in this region are beginning to become Christ followers. And we get these, these, this statement that comes. It says, Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, do you notice anything odd about that? Does anybody notice anything strange about those verses? The strange thing in those verses is that there were people who had trusted in Christ, who were living after the Spirit had come at Pentecost, and the Spirit of God had not yet come inside of their hearts. They had become Christians, but it says right here, the Holy Spirit had not yet come to reside within their hearts. And so these verses are used by some today, even today, to say that this shows that the coming of the Spirit is a second work or a second act, something that happens at a time later after you become a Christian. In other words, you become a Christian um, on day you know, one, whatever that is, and then at some point in the future you need to also pray and receive the Holy Spirit, and then the Holy Spirit comes. And the anchor verse for that concept among a number of different Christian traditions 
are passages like this one. So the question is, is that really what is being described in Acts chapter 8? It's an important theological point for us to consider. And I think the answer is that that's not what is being described here, though it sounds like it. But it was something that happened for a particular reason. I think that what is happening in Acts chapter 8 is that the people of Samaria get their own Pentecost. Remember that moment when the disciples who already believed in Jesus are sitting in the city of Jerusalem and the Holy Spirit comes down on them in Acts chapter 2 and suddenly in a dramatic way nobody can deny that the Spirit of God hadn't shown up and that for the rest of their lives they can say the Spirit of God has been with me since this significant moment that happened in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. What we see in Acts chapter 8 is a similar significant event happening in the lives of the Samaritans, a day that the Samaritans would never forget. But guess who else was there to see it? Who is it? Look, look at what it says. Now, when the, verse 14, who? The apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God. They sent to them Peter and John. Peter and John get to be present to see the Spirit of God come upon the Samaritans. They see it with their own eyes. We'll see this again in the situation with the Gentiles at large, beyond just the, 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 the Samaritans, but with the Gentiles later on in the book. They, they get their own Pentecost-type moments. Why? Well, in part so that the Samaritans would know that the Spirit of God came to them, that God intentionally has given it to them, but also so that the, the disciples would know it. Right? Jesus is teaching the disciples the promise that he gave in a very dramatic way because they were stubborn. It's possible that they might not have ever grasped it otherwise, but it happened in such a dramatic way, even among the Samaritans, that they could not deny it. And so this is not something that would happen in every culture all over the world, but it's something that would happen to this one group at this one time to let them know and us know by extension that the Spirit of God was coming not just to Jewish background believers, but would also come to those from mixed heritage. And later we'll see it will come to the Gentiles as well. But it's a significant moment for us to see inside of these things. But it's, it's really the promise of God that is playing out. And we see that in Acts chapter 8. Now what is a response that we might take away from these verses? I, one of the things that I, I thought about with this is a phenomena in world missions that uh, is happening in the world today. You know, there was an era where world missions, the, the thought was that the gospel would go from the West to the rest. This, this was an idea in missions. Now, I don't know if they had a cool rhyme for it at the time, but that was kind of the mentality. It would come from the West. It would come from Europe. It came from the United States. And, and these ideas that were birthed here would be exported in missionary practice that would go to the rest of the world. So it came from the West to the rest. And this is a, a perspective that dominated world missions for a long time. But in today's day and age, that idea cannot hold water any longer. Today, we would say that world missions are from anywhere to everywhere. In other words, there are, are missionaries who are being raised up in South America who are taking the gospel into the Middle East in ways that we can never do. There, there are believers who are being raised up in South Korea who are taking the gospel to different parts of Africa and the Middle East that we can never do. And there are people in, in other countries who are coming to America even to evangelize different parts of our country 
Um, it's from anywhere to everywhere. And we see that birth right here. The same package, the same spirit, the same truth, the same Jesus is not relegated to only work with one group of people, but it's through all people. I, I know when we were here just uh, a week ago, we reviewed a lot of what Wildwood's missions are happening around the world. And one of the things that I love about as, as Wildwood's missions program has developed over the years is that we, we don't have this perspective. There are people from different places that Wildwood is partnering with, whether it's, it's native Indians in India who are training pastors in India, whether it is, is people who have been raised up in South America and Brazil who are taking the gospel to Turkey, whether it's, whether it's people uh, that, that we know who are, are from uh, Spain who are training pastors who are taking the gospel into Morocco, whether it's seminaries in the Middle East who are training people who are taking the gospel throughout North Africa and Iraq and Iran. It is amazing what the Lord is doing, and it's not coming from the West taking it everywhere, but it's coming from every, anywhere to everywhere. And it's something that we, we know is possible because it's the same Spirit of God that is in the hearts of every believer in Christ, regardless of what their passport says. We need to remember that and celebrate that, that Jesus is at work in a global way, and we have a privilege of partnering with Him. The last section of Acts that I want us to see today is one that, that I'm going to spend less time on, but intentionally. It's not that I'm running out of time. I'm going to spend less time on this section because this is an individual that we're going to spend a lot of time talking about um, as we progress through the book. But it really is the, the, the person of Saul who becomes the Apostle Paul. And in Acts chapter 9, we have the conversion of Saul. Now, who was Saul? Well, we know something about Saul from what we just read about the killing of Stephen. Saul was present at the killing of Stephen. He gathered the coats of those who were killing Stephen. And at the beginning of Acts chapter 8, Saul is traveling around the region, gathering up Christians for persecution, death, or imprisonment. Paul or Saul was not a, a good man, and he was not someone who was actively trying to follow Jesus. As a matter of fact, he was someone who had rejected Jesus in a dramatic way. But in Acts chapter 9, all of that changes. Jesus appears to, to Saul, and he says to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Now again, what did Jesus say? Why do you persecute who? Why do you persecute me? Well, Saul wasn't persecuting Jesus, right? Saul was persecuting Christians. But remember, who are Christians? The body of Christ. Jesus is risen, not retired. He's at work through the church. And so when Jesus shows up to Paul, he says, Saul, you, you, are, you are persecuting me. I've got a different plan for your life. And Saul falls down and goes blind and ultimately ends up trusting Christ and Acts chapter 9, and his life immediately is transformed. And it was such a massive turn when Paul became a Christian. Saul, Paul, same person, became a Christian. Um, the, the original followers of Christ, including the apostles, wanted nothing to do with him initially. Why? Because he was the guy that was trying to kill him. Right? They're like, this, I don't even trust that guy. I don't trust him as far as I can throw him. 
I don't want to invite him in for dinner. I don't want to sit down and share the gospel with him. Are you kidding me? This guy came here to arrest me. He came here to, to kill me. He might have mistreated some of their family members already. But we see in Acts chapter 9 this massive change that happens in the life of the Apostle Paul. And it's such a, a remarkable thing for us to see because it reminds us that the gospel has no limit to the people that it can reach. We often want to, to say that, well, Jesus might be able to save our offspring, or he might be able to save some good old boy, but he certainly can't save those who are persecuting the church. But that's not what we see in the book of Acts. What we see in the book of Acts is that Jesus is at work seeking and saving the lost, even those who are very, very far from God, even those like Saul who are adamantly set on the persecution of the church. After Saul is, is saved, we saw this a few weeks ago in our series of Galatians on Sunday morning, Saul ends up spending about 14 years' time in development um, by the Lord before he begins his public ministry um, about 14 years later. And so Saul's salvation is immediate, but then his extended preparation for the ministry that God has for him took place over an extended period of time. And we see all of that laid out for us there in chapter 9. Now, what is a response that we might see in this section? And we'll end with this. The response for this is, if Jesus is at work today, even seeking to reach and to save those who are far from him, those who we would identify as even persecuting him, if, if Jesus is the same today as he was then, then, then why would we limit who we pray for? Why would we limit who we think that Jesus can save? Why would we limit who we would even share the gospel with? But we can be bold in our prayers and we can be bold in our evangelism by sharing this, knowing that if Saul can be saved, friends, anyone can be saved. And it's not on the basis of their resume, what they had done in the past, because Saul's resume stunk. It was on the basis of Jesus' grace that they might be saved, just as it was for you and me so that we might be bold in our prayers and bold in our outreach to those who are very far from him. And even as I say that, I'm, I'm guessing that, that, that some of you here are thinking of someone in your life who you would categorize as that person will never, because they are living a life or they are promoting a cause or they are even hostile to the things of God. But friends, let's not sell short what God can do. Let's not say, well, we can't share truth with them because we know what they will do with it. But we might pray that God would open their eyes, even as he did Paul. We might be able to share the gospel with them, that he might transform their soul, even as he did Paul. That's a response that we could have from this. But then a second thought is just a reminder that our salvation is instantaneous, but our maturing takes time. Our salvation is instantaneous, but our maturing takes time. Saul was saved in a moment. Jesus didn't say to Saul, I want you to start a rehabilitation plan, and maybe 14 years from now, I will save you. No, Saul was saved on the road to Damascus in a moment, in an instant, because Jesus' work on the cross finished the task, and he was saved. And if we know Christ, our salvation was just as instantaneous. The moment we placed our faith in Christ, we were saved forever. The moment we placed our faith in Christ, the Spirit came to dwell within our hearts and lives. That's the blessing that God has for us. But, but just like 
Paul went through 14 years of maturing before all of his you know, ministry. Not that he didn't do anything for 14 years, but the things that we know Paul for began some 14 years later. God developed him over time. And that ought to encourage us that we, like Paul, are also a work in progress. We might have walked with God for a year or two years or three years. We might be a new Christian or whatever. But think about that. What were you, where were you in your spiritual life 14 years ago? Well, for some of you, that was before you even knew Christ. Well, guess what? Where are you going to be 14 years from now? Jesus developed Paul over time, and Jesus will develop us over time as well for the purposes that he has for us in our lives. Friends, this is a, a quick summary. You're like, it's not quick, Mark. You talked for a long time. Uh, I get it. Um, but it is a, a fast summary of the first section of Acts. Now, why do we go so quickly through this, this, this section? The reason why is because you realize that all of those events took place over just a couple of years. Remember, the book of Acts covers about 30 years of time. But the events that in the first nine chapters set the foundation for the rest of the book, and they all happen in a very brief period of time. It's really the, the prologue to the book of Acts. Next week, we get to see the real story begin to, to develop and take shape. So hopefully you'll join us next week as we are in part two of this series, as we're going to look at Acts chapter 9, verse 32 through 15, verse 35, as we talk about the growing and going of the church. And I would encourage you in the next week, maybe take some time and just read Acts chapter 1 through Acts chapter 15. That'll help not only cover with some context that we gave what, the first section, but also looking ahead at what we're going to look at next Sunday, or next, I'm used to Sundays, next Wednesday as we look at this together. So let me, let me pray for us and then we'll wrap up. Father God, thanks for the time today. Thanks for the truth of your word. And we pray that you would guide us as we seek to respond to it in faith. Thank you for the preservation of the book of Acts so that we could see what it looks like for the signature of Christ to be on his people. And may the world look at us today, Lord, and see your signature verifying your presence through the fruits of your spirit in our lives today. And that you might add to our number day by day those who are being saved. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you all. We'll see you soon.